Hi, and welcome to another episode of Cybertech Talks, a podcast where we bring cybersecurity experts together for a conversation. Crest recently hosted a webinar about neurodiversity in the technical security workplace, and we thought the conversation was so insightful and could add value to the listeners of our podcast as well. So for that reason, we've decided to release it for you here too, in case you'd prefer to listen to it while you go about your day. The conversation was hosted by Debbie Jones and our wonderful panellists were Nathan Chung, Cassandra Pierre, Lisa Ventura, Ed Hardy and Stephanie. Listen to hear about their experiences with neurodiversity and working in cyber, why people are often diagnosed later in life, what you can do as a manager to support your team and why creating a more inclusive work environment is beneficial to all. We hope you enjoy the episode. Today we will be talking about neurodiversity in the technical workplace Um, and we have been so lucky to get some amazing panellists together today. So I will be handing over to them very shortly so they can introduce themselves. But I know that um, it's been it's been amazing and thank you so much to our panellists today for for joining us. And um, I know the discussions are going to be really good. So thank you very much for attending today and I'm going to pass over to your panellists to introduce themselves. Thank you. Uh, Thanks very much. Uh, Ed Hardy, um, I work for a company called Alex Partners in their cybersecurity. So I'm a a management consultant, um, dyslexic, ADHD, all that sort of thing. Um, And I've I've done most jobs in cyber in the 20 odd years I've been here. Thank you. Hi, I'm Nathan Chung and I was diagnosed with autism ADHD in early 2021. And I've had these conditions my entire life and you can you consider me a, a late. I got diagnosed late in my life, so <laughs> better late than never. Thank you. Hi everyone, I'm Lisa Ventura. Um, I am the founder of Cybersecurity Unity. Like Nathan, I was diagnosed um, quite late in life as autistic, and I do a lot um, of work around neurodiversity within cybersecurity as I've been in the industry since 2009. Oh, good morning. My name is Cassandra Pierre. I'm the Neurodiversity Affiliate President for Women in Cybersecurity, or WESIS. Um, Our mission is to recruit, retrain, and advance women in cybersecurity. I currently work um, for a global bank in technology talent development, and I'm also a student working towards a degree in cybersecurity. And like other people on the panel, I'm also late diagnosed. So thank you for having me. I'm excited to be here. Hello, everyone. I'm Stephanie. I am a security engineer at Cisco, and I am also the vice president of the affiliate that Cassandra mentioned. Um, I also was a late diagnosis uh, three years ago um, as ADHD. Thank you so much. So as I said at the very beginning, we're very lucky to be joined by everyone today. And thank you so much to our panelists. Um, So Let's get these discussions started, shall we? So one of the one of the questions I think that that gets asked uh, many times within this industry and many other industries is, what is neurodiversity? So everyone out there has a different definition in their mind, thoughts on what neurodiversity is or means. So I'd like to hand it over to you, and so you can talk about some of your experiences and thoughts behind, you know, what is neurodiversity? Well, thank you. Um, I I think you're you're right. Everyone is going to have a slightly different experience and an understanding of it. But for me, very simply, it's people's brains are wired in different ways. And there isn't a correct, wrong, right, good, bad. It's just the way your brain is wired. 
And for me, neurodiversity, particularly in the industry, is working the way my brain works as opposed to masking or pretending or trying to sort of contort my brain into, um, I hate the word, but the normal, the regular, the, you know, this is how you should work. And for, for me, the, the benefit is when, when you can stop pretending, you've got so much more energy. You, you, you're not wasting all that time sort of pretending to be normal and, you know, fit, fit in. And it, it's wonderful having been on the receiving end of people who've treated me like that and, and let me grow. It's amazing. But it's also wonderful when you've employed people and you go, if I can create a hole that is the shape of that person's brain and pop them in there, they just, they flourish. They, they, they work so much better. So for, for me, it's not, not fighting it, but sort of accepting that your brain is wired this way. Let's get on with it. Great. Thanks, Ed. And would anybody else like to talk about their experiences? Can I come in on that piece? Because I, I absolutely agree with a lot of what you said, Ed. For me, being able to take the mask off, I didn't realise that I'd been masking my entire life until I was diagnosed. And then so much made sense in terms of why I struggled in a lot of different areas, why I struggled to fit in or, or just get things done or what have you. And it just was that light bulb moment of, my goodness, I have been putting this mask on all my life and I can now start to you know, take this mask off and be authentically myself. And also a lot of the things that I ask myself around university is, who set what normal is anyway? How did that even, you know, come about? You just go, who, what, you know, how did this thing of what normal is, how did that come to be? And is it that we were at one point, did evolution going this way and, and there's just so much there that I I'm just fascinated about and try to look into about where on earth did this idea of normal you know come come from and why we as as those the neurodiverse are considered not normal it's it's just something I've you can tell I've got a quite a an interest in and a, and a, and a passion about of in terms of research and, and there's a, a really sad element of there's a sort of implication of its lack of effort that's mm. the one that annoys me is that it's yeah yeah the reason you can't do that is because you're not trying hard enough everyone else is working really hard and that it, it's so disappointing when that happens I think that's one of the um, great things about the neurodiversity movement is that it reframes just that the you're lazy you're not working hard enough you're not applying minds to one of um providing exclusive, inclusive spaces where people can kind of work in their own element, work the way that's best for them, um, unencumbered. And I think uh, the pandemic had a lot to do with that when people moved back home and they were in their own spaces and productivity surprisingly exponentially increased. I don't think there's a coincidence there. I think when people are given um, wide spaces to be themselves, to be authentic and to do their best, the best comes out. And I think uh, as you know, evidence on this panel, you can see that people can be extremely successful when given the tools that they need. That's very true. And and I, you know, sort of moving into that when you've all, as you say, you've all got careers within the industry and you've been in other industries and all all of that will will flow through with you, all of those experiences and everything. So could you could you give some examples of um 
your experience with how um, some of the processes had been really thought out and had helped you or some of those processes that really hadn't been thought out and had had hindered you in the workplace um, and and so if you could give some of those examples that would be really helpful I think. I, I think what what I will say before I answer that is it's always amazing the the little things the I don't like the word accommodation, but the um, the assistance makes it better for everyone else. It's not just a it's not just a me thing. So the you know sitting wearing noise cancelling headphones in the office turns out everyone likes doing that. Turns out they they don't like the big noisy environment. Turn you know having control of the lighting so you're not sticking under sitting under those horrible UV lights. They, you know turns out everyone likes that. Turns out. You know, stopping the coffee machine, making that infuriating beeping sound every time somebody goes near it, it and things like that. But also just, and it doesn't even need to be anything formal. So, for example, I have a lovely boss who recognises that my spelling is pretty awful and it's not through lack of effort. So there's just an extra review of my documents before they go to a client. He's just super cool. I can send him a document. He'll review it. And it's not a you've made a mistake. He'll just help me sort it and it's it's things like that where they're going you know we we recognize that we recognize what's going on we are supporting you and it's not a judgment it's not you're a failure or you're a bad person it's just you you need some help with that so we we help you and i i also really like when they see it as a commercial thing so it's not an act of charity it's an act of our job as a manager is to get the best performance from these people so we should support them and and help them. Uh, one thing uh, that's great, that's wonderful, Ed. And uh, one thing to add to that is what I tell what I, what I tell people at conferences and my talks is it is hard for the managers as well. If you think about it, they have to take into account people like gender, race, LGBTQ plus, etc. So instead of labeling people and putting us in these little boxes, how about just ask one simple question? From manager to your workers, what do you need to to succeed? Because that crosses all of that entire demographic. It's that one simple question, and that's so easy. I think that's yeah, I think that's perfect. Yes, because um, and I, I've had this conversation with recruiting managers going, how how do we possibly manage all of this? Because if you're saying all the bits within diversity are diverse, everyone needs other things. It's not rocket science. You. You ask them at the start of the hiring process and you keep asking them going, what can we do to help? Yep. Brilliant. <laughs> yeah, I think that um, in our industry, there is uh, sometimes, I think, not that idea that managing people is going to be different from managing products or managing yeah. systems or managing the processes that make a team work. Um, people management is actually quite complex because in a lot of ways you can't just slap on a generalized way of managing everyone and expect it to work. For some people they will thrive under that choice um, but for many others they will kind of flounder and not find their way 
And unfortunately, sometimes when things are going wrong, there's not a tendency to curiosity. Um, there's a tendency to blame or um, pip or something mm -hmm. else punitive to address certain failures rather than the curiosity of like, well, what's going on? Is there a deeper reason? Um, or even providing the space to be vulnerable enough to say certain things, uh, which is why when one of us speaks out and advocates for ourselves, it ends up having an effect across the entire team. Like if I, I'm not a huge meeting person. So if we're gonna have a meeting, I'm hoping that it's very valuable um, and that I know why I'm there and what's going on and what to expect and what to talk about. Um, and comes to find out a lot of people prefer that and would rather not have random meetings or an overload of meetings. And it, it, it greatly in, impedes on their ability to be productive. So. It's, it's a problem, I think, management is a hard job, just like Nathan said, um, but that's kind of why you can't really make that choice lightly of who's going to be in that position, because some people are just naturally not inclined to those other nuances of what management might be. Um, you would love that everybody is able to be managed in this blanket way because it makes your job easier. But more often than not, especially in our industry, I think that there's a myriad of people who work in different ways. So it's a hard problem. I think that even if you discounted neurodiverse people, you still have those nuances with neurotypical people as well. It's just not everybody works in the same way. It's why school too will work for some people and some people will struggle um, heavily trying to do the same format. Um, so yeah, that's my, my two cents. I, I love your example about meetings because that's such a, who, who on earth wants to go to a meeting where you don't know what's going to happen and you don't know who's going to be there and you don't know what they're going to want you to do? How is that in any way productive for anyone on the planet? And it's just one of these things going, you, you did it for these people. You, you might save hundreds of hours a year of pointless meetings. And it's it, it's such a, and it, it's, it's no cost. It's not, we you know, we need another 20 people to manage this. It's we need to think for five minutes and send an email before we book a meeting. And, and if I could just come in there, actually, you've made a very valid point. Do you think um, perhaps with the pandemic, that might have changed that thought process for some managers, leaders, and how they think about meetings? Or have you not really seen a change um, because of that? For me personally, in the beginning, there were actually way more meetings <laughs> than normal. Yeah. Um, way more. My calendar was so full all the time with meetings. And I quickly became Zoom fatigued and and webex fatigued and all of it was fatiguing me um so but after a while that was simply unsustainable people would start seeing every meeting as optional because we had so many it's like oh if i don't catch it in this one i'm sure there's another one i'll hop on and they'll repeat what they said earlier and so quickly things have pared down and we've started doing on my team some more asynchronous meetings where we just talk and chat and then we're able to like focus on what we're focused on or at cisco we have like the first, I believe it's like the first Wednesday of every month is a focus day, which I wish there were like more of those, but focus day is like no meetings allowed at all across the organization and everybody has to just get that time to focus on whatever they want. So over time, it's improved the way that things have been, but still there are always 
I feel like there's just always superfluous meetings um, and I just have to be more diligent about, I believe that this can be resolved outside of this meeting. How about I send you this? And if you still feel like you want to talk, we can continue that. But being an advocate for myself has helped more often than not with me avoiding just kind of going with the flow of it and trying to conform to what the culture says and just knowing it doesn't work for me because I will just zone out <laughs> and not listen. <laughs> so. that, that's such a difficult stage to get. It's the the phrase knowing yourself. I mean, that for, for me, that's, you know, I've got about 10% of that and I'm 40 something years in and I'm still trying to work it out. And it, but being, being, being in a safe space where you can go, actually, before we have that meeting, could you, could you tell me what it's about, please? Is, yes, that's that, a big step. I think that that is the point, the key point that you just mentioned, um, having a safe space where these conversations can happen. Um, when I, an environment, a workplace is inclusive, we not only include our neurodiverse workers, but we also include our workers who have disabilities, right? And I think the pandemic was a huge catalyst in changing the way the workplace developed, where people were able to be productive at home and to hold down a job. We all know the, the statistics around unemployment for neurodiverse individuals. Um, what I can say, uh, which kind of aligns with what Steph said, is at the beginning, I was well, completely overwhelmed. They went from meeting to meeting to meeting. And then, you know, at some point I had to have that full stop moment and have a conversation. Like if I continue to do this, I'm going to burn out. How can we change this? And I was able to have that open conversation with my leader at the time saying, hey, I, I kind of need a flexible schedule. Can we incorporate that? I got a yes. Um, can, is it okay if I log on at four in the morning when I'm wide awake? Can I work then and do my work and then maybe log on later? And I got another yes. And all of these changes were able to get me to a place where I was able to be productive. Now, mind you, my colleagues may not have needed a 4 a.m. start time, but, you know, they, my manager was able to meet me where I was. Um, I felt safe opening up and being honest. And in turn, I was able to get the support that I needed. I think for me as well, I'd been working from home since 2015. So the pandemic didn't really affect me in that sense. But I made that move in 2015 without even knowing at the time that I was autistic and neurodiverse because I was struggling in the office environment. The noise, the interruptions, the people, everything else. It was just, and I, I made that sort of choice to work from home and found that I was so much more productive once I'd done that but the amount of calls when the pandemic hit you're right even for, just was exponential it was like a boom it was call after call every hour and stuff and now I've started to put things in in place so I'll actually mark my calendar with do not book in specific slots just so I can get a bit of a break in between calls even if it's just for 15 minutes you know half an hour or so on and I always stop at around 12 30 every day my husband stops what he's doing as well as so we have separate offices at home where we work in and we'll have our lunch together uh, feed our dog because she's got a rare illness so she has to have four meals a day with medicine and always making sure we have that that break and that bit of downtime and that really helps um for for me like you mentioning the dog, I, I got a pandemic dog, as they're called in the U.S. <laughs> and you know what? My health improved. Uh, amazing. Yeah. I was forced to get up out of my seat. I was forced to go outside and get fresh air, forced to walk him, 
you know, I, I it, it was probably um, one of the better things that I did during the pandemic, um, just to help with my overall mental and physical health. So I'm glad you mentioned that. That's great. Thank you for those for those comments. So one of the questions that we've had come in, um, because I'd like to, I was going to save them to the end, but I think this kind of comes in quite nicely. Um, with everything that you've been been talking about, obviously you were all, all quite diagnosed later on um, in life. So you've been you've had a bit of a career, and then you've had a diagnosis. Um, so what are your views on? the root of the cause of a late diagnosis because we do hear that quite a lot through the industry that um people don't come in and they say they say straight away so is there is there a barrier because people already know and are not saying or is it just that people are finding out later once they get into the workplace so what's your thoughts and views around that that's a really so um, dyslexia I was diagnosed young because my mum was a teacher so I was fortunate she knew knew the signs and was ferocious enough to be unpleasant to teachers and make stuff happen and you know so to, she she was able to advocate a- ADHD happened during the pandemic because I was really str- struggling and I suddenly realized that without without the aggressive deadlines on me I couldn't you know having I'd much rather have two days to do six weeks work than have six months to do two days work I just can't I can't do it and um actually was one of my friends who got a diagnosis and he gave me the blank questionnaire and I just oh oh, I've scored more than you and you've got a diagnosis I I should go and speak to somebody and it's go it's it, it took me it took me a while to pluck up the courage to go and see somebody because, you know, psychiatrists, doctors, diagnosis about me, self-identity, that's a, it's a big step to take, even though I was in the fortunate position to be able to just throw money at it and do it privately so I could do it whenever I wanted. It's still a, it's a hell of a step to take about your identity and what will your colleagues think and you know, I'm, I'm sure nobody's going to go, oi, get out. But would it, would it impact my career? And and I've certainly heard, I don't know about you guys, but I've certainly heard from lots of people who have a diagnosis or think they, they meet the criteria, but don't want to diagnose it because they're worried people will judge them for it. Definitely. I think um, one of the big reasons why late diagnosis is prevalent specifically in underrepresented communities, specifically with women, specifically with black women, um, is because, you know, there isn't enough data, right? You know, oftentimes we present to our physician and we share um, difficulties that we may be experiencing and we receive another diagnosis, right? Um, For me personally, I was in the mental health space prior to switching over to technology. So I had a little bit of an idea of what neurodiversity was and, you know, the diagnosis that could fall underneath that umbrella. But I didn't think of it right for me personally. It wasn't until, you know, like I said, the pandemic where I started to have larger conversations. I met Nathan and I met some other people. And I started looking at looking back at my history, looking back at my work history, looking back at, you know, productivity, certain key markers that indicated that something else was going on. Um, At that point, I'd already had a great uh, relationship with my psychiatrist and a therapist, and we were able to have the discussions, and they actually kind of fast-tracked the process to diagnosis for me. But 
for a lot of um, individuals, specifically in the Black community, stigma around mental health, neurodiversity, difference, anything like that, it's just highly stigmatized. And a lot of people prefer to struggle in silence than to out themselves and ask for help, unfortunately. Yeah. And well said, Cassandra. And I, I, I echo Cassandra's comments. Uh, I'm an Asian, so my family came originally from China in the year 1900, but I grew up in Hawaii. But the Asian culture in general, is a lot of it is based on thousands of years of Confucian thought, which emphasizes family and lack of a better term, ableism. Like you gotta function, you gotta work for the family. Don't make the family look bad. Don't bring shame or dishonor the family. So what that does is create a wall, a tall wall where you cannot ask for help. You cannot say, I have this condition, I need help. You gotta hide it. You gotta essentially suck it up and this sadly results in many in Asia committing suicide over it because they can't get help. They just go into decline, crash. And just following on from that, Nathan, when I told my parents about my diagnosis, they completely dismissed it out of hand. So I had the diagnosis in writing. I told them about it. They took one look at the piece of paper, threw it down. No, that's wrong. You can't possibly be be autistic. And I said, really? Why? You know, the, uh, the guy that's diagnosed me has been in this field for 25 odd years and, you know, she's got a lot of expertise, etc. Why do you think that? Oh, because when you were at school, um, none of your teachers ever said to us that you you might be autistic. So you can't possibly be because if you were, we would have been told about it when you were at school. I mean, it, it was different times back then. I was at school in the 70s and early 80s. It wasn't talked about it wasn't you know teachers and education providers weren't made aware of it and it was just that complete dismissal of no you can't possibly be and I think it's because it reflects on them and reflects on their abilities and so on that they have to just shut it down and it, it pretend it can't happen oh Nathan exactly and in Asian culture it's even worse because of the because science has proven that neurodiverse condition has a strong genetic component. So essentially, it does come from the parents. But in Asian culture, we worship and are almost pretty much required to honor parents. They put them on the pedestal. So it makes the whole thing around neurodiversity very difficult because what parents, what parents will admit that they cause their child to have this condition. Some parents rather mm-hmm. kill themselves or kill their kids rather than admit it out of shame pride, honor. These are all similar concepts in various countries, but it, it is pretty much the same mass. Mm-hmm. Same mass. Yeah. And I'm the same. I have family, two cousins diagnosed autistic, another cousin that was diagnosed dyslexic and dyspraxia. And had my son lived, he was still born because of a rare chromosome duplication I was told he would have absolutely been autistic had he lived so very very strong neurodiversity within my family still shut it down completely as if it just wasn't happening yeah I have the same issue I'm or (laughs) issue or dynamic with my parents my uh, parents are Nigerian um, and to this day I don't know that it's properly acknowledged that I say that I have ADHD and that I've been diagnosed um, because there's the cultural component, but also the religious component of just shying away from 
claiming those kinds of things um, and, you know, try harder or, you know, pray about it and maybe it will go away kind of messaging. So, yeah, I, I think that that's the hard component is when your parents don't really catch it and it's not something that you hear about. Um, because, you know, neurodiverse, especially like if you have a stronger case, you're, you're kind of segregated from the rest of the population. So it's not like I heard people talking about, oh, my ADHD was flaring or, oh, I had this problem. We, and then in America, we colloquialize terms too. So you've heard a million people say my OCD was acting up or my ADHD was acting up. And they just mean like in a moment they were distracted or they were like very hyper fixated on one thing. Um, So you don't really get a full understanding of these things to be able to say, hold on, some of this sounds familiar. Um, And I always thought ADHD or ADD was like a kid thing. And even my mom was like, you can't have it now. You're an adult. (laughs) All of that comes to it. You know what? I'm happy you said that, Stephanie, because that is one of the largest myths slash stereotypes of neurodiversity that it, it only affects young white males, which is bollocks. But so uh, horrible question. But give, given people's attitudes to it in families, what about disclosing when at work? So especially, it, it's fine for people who like us who are sort of established in our careers, and if they're not nice to us, fine, I'll go somewhere else. But if you're applying for an interview and you want accommodations, what do you think on about disclosing that? Because it it makes you vulnerable. And you're not going to get the help without. <laughs> um, you know, I think uh, I think the attitudes in the United States have a very long way to go um, around disclosure. I think uh, the majority of individuals who have a disabling condition would prefer not to disclose prior to landing the job. Once they get the offer letter and they start and they meet their manager and colleagues, so on and so forth, that's usually when they have the conversation Mm -hmm. that they need additional um, supports. Unfortunately, I've heard a lot of stories of accommodation requests going wrong, right? And an employee, unfortunately, being, you know, pushed out indirectly, you know, from their job because they were deemed too much of a a problem or they had too many needs. Um, So the environment right now, I think, in corporate America is one where this is still being felt out. Um, There are a lot of companies that I think are further along um, on the runway of accepting inclusion across the board where people aren't put in these positions, but there's still a lot of work to be done, a lot of work. Mm. And in fact, one of the top two uh, requests made by our membership with Lisas was help with disclosure and help with getting accommodations, right? Um, I think that is directly indicative to the environment that exists right now in corporate America. Yep, and to to add on to Cassandra's point, to share one horror story, I know one guy, he, he interviewed for a job, got the job offer, but as soon as he said, he has autism and needs accommodations. The company immediately withdrew the job offer. It's shocking, but that speaks to the state of things in the U.S. Like, as Cassandra said, it's a long way to go. That, that is horrific, and it leaves the individual in a really vulnerable position. I, w- I mean, short term, it's no help. But I will say long term, 
I think they are better off out of, you know, that's not a company they they want to work for. And that company has missed out on talent. But the the sad reality is you still need to pay your rent and they eat. It's it it, it it's a horrible situation because how is somebody going to get through the interview process if if they don't get the accommodation? And if they're going through the interview process masking, then you know it's hard for them to work out if if they fit. I'm 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 lucky. I'm proud. I that I you know I work for a company that is incredibly flexible and goes you know whatever you need, get on with it. But that's rare. Yeah. Yeah, I think there is. Um, there's a big difference in companies. And one of the things I was thinking about when I was listening to um, you discuss was, you know, how how do the companies that are doing it right show that to the companies that aren't? Mm. And if you've got people within the industry at the moment and are listening to to you discuss this, how could they start to make that change within their organizations um you know what is what is there to to help them um and for them to change people's mindsets i'm really, I'm really happy you brought that up because when when google's there are many many companies that champion no diversity you know they have hiring program but i i, I strongly favor the Things like I, I used to be an auditor, so I strongly believe that that could be the key. That's something from our cyber world. Companies should be audited. Like when these big companies, they say they support no diversity, but as the saying goes, the proof is in the pudding. Like they should be audited. They should ask people at these companies, "Are you being supported? Do you feel comfortable?" Because to give you an example, I know some people at this one company, which is very famous for their no diversity hiring program. I heard stories of bosses bullying and treating their no diverse employees like garbage. Like for example, they were having an autistic meltdown and the boss belittled and like pushed further. It's like just laughed at them while all this happening in front of all their coworkers. And this is at a famous company that tells their no diverse hiring program. Like things like that should be brought to the forefront and mm. be, you know advertised. Like I have to say I think the thing I've the thing that I have seen that has impacted diversity, and it, it shouldn't be this way, but the, the most successful thing has been parents getting into positions of power with a child that identifies as that, because suddenly things get taken seriously. Suddenly they go, if someone treated my daughter like that, I'd, mm. you know, I'd, I'd go for them. So I'm going to make sure that will never, ever happen. But I think there's there's a mixture of, People being feel if people feel safe, they will be open and disclose, but that should never be a requirement. And asking and asking and asking every step of recruitment and every performance review and every stage going, right, what can I do to make this work better for you? And it, you know, you would you've started this recruitment process. Is there anything I can do? I don't need you to say you're autistic or say you've got ADHD or show me a certificate. Just need to go. Is there anything about this process that we can do to make it easier for you? And I think you ask that at every stage of the process and every performance review, but also at the start of every single project. You know, as as a manager, you can see when your staff are having a, a struggling or having a bad day, and instead of berating them, just going, "You you you look like you're struggling today. Is the can we do something to help?" Definitely. 
I think if I were a CEO of a larger company and I was having this issue uh, creating pipelines and pathways for um, diverse talent to come in the door, the first thing I would do is look at the gold standards, right? The companies that are doing it right, like Microsoft, I would say is one of those people, one of those companies that, you know, they don't wait for you to ask. They provide the information ahead of time so you can choose whether or not you need to use those um, support services I also think that leveraging community organizations that exist like Disability In, um, I'm a volunteer for Disability In, and they are uh, leading the way with research and best practices and industry standards around disability inclusion and inclusion as a whole. Um, and then lastly, I think this one is pretty easy. What people could start doing right now is just embed inclusion into your processes, right? Think about the standards or, or the processes uh, the tasks that are embedded in that, that would support the widest amount of people. What could you do? What could you um, add to make a process more inclusive for everyone, despite what their ability level would be? Um, I think starting there would move the needle a little bit further towards um, accessibility and inclusion for everyone. And I think you, it keeps coming back. Everything that's been said on this call about adjustments makes things better for, for everybody. So, you know, if you're going through an interview process going, could I, could we send the questions or the topics out in advance? Why wouldn't you do that for everyone? Because, you, you, you know, you're going to tell them what the meeting is about in advance anyway, or they're going to know. And, you know, this this is not some sort of, little school thing where we just want to test, can you recite meaningless data? We want to know, can you think and can you problem solve? And, you know, it's not cheating for them to be able to go and research in advance. So that just makes it better for everyone. That is, at the end, that is very, very true. And um, I'd come and work for you, Cassandra, i just say, after what you said. Just uh, one day. Yeah. <laughs> One day, let me know. I'll be there. Um, and yeah, so listen to that. It, it's very true. It's about looking at individuals on a daily basis and saying, "What does what do my workforce need? What 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 can I do to adapt and adjust and and actually get the best out of them?" Because it is very true. Um, we all have different abilities. And it goes back to a piece that Lisa said earlier, what is the norm? You know, who, set, who sets a norm? Um, and there is there is no norm. We're all incredibly different. And, you know, there, there's five of you on this panel. And if you were all sitting around a table and you were discussing something, you'll all have different ideas and different thoughts. And the reason we come to a good conclusion about something or a good idea is because all of those different thoughts go in. If we all, in the theory, thought the same norm pattern, that would never happen, would it? So it's it's so so true, um, and that's that's really interesting. So we are we are coming to the end, I'm afraid. And I've I've really enjoyed um, this panel session, as I'm sure our attendees have. But if I could just ask you all to just leave one thought with our audience today um, that they could take away, and I know it puts you a little bit on the spot, but just one. Thing that they could think about um, before they leave today, that would be great. So whoever wants to start us off. I can um, start. 
you go ahead, Stephanie. I would just say that you have to develop a trust for yourself um, because no matter if you're neurodivergent or not, uh, you know what's normal and what's not. Um, you know what trying really hard looks like for yourself and what it isn't. So you kind of have to tune out noise and rely on yourself and develop that self-trust so that you can advocate for yourself when necessary or you know to look and search because I think all of us had a flavor of that experience and that is what led us to um, a journey to just better fit in this world. So yeah, develop self-trust is definitely something I would recommend for anyone listening. Great. Um, I would say, I think this one is targeted to managers. <laughs> if you have an employee that is struggling before you uh, move towards judgment, ask questions and try to connect with them yeah. um, and be open to what they say. Lovely. Thank you. And who would like to, to go next? I, I can go uh, oh, great. To, add to, a lot, to add to a lot of it. Uh, one, of, one of the greatest challenges for neurodiversity is self-acceptance because it's essentially a fight within ourselves like i myself when i was growing up i i i never wanted to be disabled it's just so much negative negativity around it so you got to be able to accept himself and one quote from uh miss that that show miss marvel i think it said it best where she says there is no normal there's just us and what we do with what we've been given i think that says a lot Great, thank you. Um, and Lisa and Ed? I don't mind going next, Ed. I think for me, very similar to what Cassandra said in terms of your man approaching your managers, talking to them and actually listening to what we have to, to, to say um, and to be a bit on our side. And I think also um, for me personally, and it's something we haven't had time to sort of touch on a lot, I have experienced bullying in pretty much most of the organizations that I've been in I've also experienced it from parents within my family from friends it's like it's been in every single area of my life and in fact I almost completely left cybersecurity as a result of that um, just over a, a year ago so um, I just would say to just sort of think a little bit more about how you're interacting with people you're and this is the way you're talking to to, to people um because those experiences that, that I've had have been so horrific. I've almost come out of cybersecurity you know, completely. And I don't know if they just sense that they can do that to us or we, or, or so I, I, I don't know. I don't know where it comes from. And it's something that I want to do a lot more research into as well. And a lot more in terms of um, researching narcissistic personalities um, within the workplace. Well, um, you know, before I answer mine, I'm I'm sorry you've been treated like that. It's fundamentally unacceptable. Um, and I think it sort of leads into my point that you have to advocate for yourself. You you know, it, mm. it would be lovely to to know, and and we should be able to rely on other people. But stand up for yourself. If it's not right, call it out. It's it's okay to say I am not all right. It's okay to say I need help. It's not it's not weakness. It's not a lack of effort. You know. They, people are unlikely to just spot it and help you unless you're in a very nice organization so stand up stand up for your rights it's not it's not charity it's your absolute entitlement stand up for it 
Wonderful. Thank you so much um, for that. Um, so, yes, so sadly, we have come to the end of the panel session. I want to say a big thank you to our panellists today. That has been really interesting, um, great conversation. And thank you to our audience for, for attending and listening. And as I say, there will be a recording going out um, later. If you have any questions after um, this wonderful session, Thank you so much. Do send them in and uh, we will get back to you. Just uh, pop them through to marketing at crest-approved.org. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Bye. Thank you for listening to another episode of Cybertech Talks. And to echo our host, Debbie, a big thank you to Nathan, Cassandra, Lisa, Ed and Stephanie for sharing their experiences and tips with us. If you'd like to watch the video version of this discussion, you can find a link to Crest's YouTube video in the show notes. We look forward to bringing you more episodes with cyber experts. Make sure to subscribe and follow the podcast on Twitter and LinkedIn for further updates. This podcast was brought to you by Crest, an international not-for-profit membership body representing the global cybersecurity industry.